0: You're listening to Time in the Word. In today's study, Dr. Gonzalez will conclude his exposition of Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. He will point out that Paul's concern was the gospel. Even when it came to another apostle, Paul cared enough to confront. For him, it was not peace at any price, but the gospel at all costs. Paul strongly objected to the hypocrisy of Peter, Barnabas, and the others. He'll also point out that when Paul confronted Peter in Antioch, He was dealing with something more than just a social issue. He understood his rebuke of Peter was nothing less than a battle for the gospel of free grace. On the surface, the issue was unity between Jews and Gentiles at the table, but beneath the surface lurked the deeper issue of what God requires for salvation. As God ministers to you through this series of studies, and as you experience God's grace in your own life. Share these podcasts with others so that they too may be blessed by God's word and his amazing grace. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez continues his expository study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 2,
1: starting verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Um, as I make my way through the remaining verses of this chapter, I'll certainly try to cover the information in, in the order in which it's presented, but I'll, I will go f- jump from verse to verse back and forth, sort of make some of the points that I, I want to make. Some people in the church are like Peter, and by that I simply mean that they hate confrontation. They do not want to cause any trouble or make a scene, so they avoid it at all cost. However, for Paul, not that Paul necessarily was the type of individual that simply started trouble for the sake of trouble, but for Paul, when something was as critical as the issue that we're dealing with here, he certainly had no problem raising it. His concern here, again, was the gospel. His concern here was with truth. This was not a matter of preference over a practice. It was the essence of the gospel. Even when it came to another apostle, Paul cared enough to confront. For him, it was not peace at any price, but the gospel at all costs. That was the difference between Paul and Peter, at least in this situation. Now here was Paul's protest with Peter's pretense. Look at verse, at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct, and here's the key, not in step with the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? There is no doubt that there are many situations in which Paul was maybe willing to keep things private or maybe to work out some sort of compromise if, if, if that was the appropriate action to take. But not this time. He opposed Peter right to his face, the text tells us. And he did it, the text tells us, out in the open. Again, we, we, we can learn from the example of Paul that there are certain issues, certain circumstances which may require this type of action. But not always. So let's not become, let's not start, Improperly imitating Paul, in the sense that we're using Paul as an argument for "be confrontational." He's being confrontational for a specific reason it was called for, and in the manner in which he did it, did it because it was called for, but it must be called for. And oftentimes the case may not warrant a, a, a reaction like this. Not this time, he opposes him right to his face, right in front of the church. Paul didn't do this to be argumentative or, again, because he p- considered Peter to be some kind of rival. He did it because, and you notice that I, when we got to a certain section of verse 14, I told you take note of this, he did it because the truth of the gospel was at stake. That's the important phrase in that verse. That's what warranted his reaction. That's what warranted his confrontation. And because Peter's sin was obvious, look at verse 11. He stood condemned, meaning condemned before God by his own actions. Listen, not only was Peter in the wrong, but he was also setting a very bad example. And that's why Paul had to confront him in public. A private offense deserves a private rebuke. But a public scandal sometimes demands public exposure. And this was one of those instances. Peter, I mean, think of who Peter was, the apostle Peter. He was a leader. And it was because of who he was that he was able to influence the behavior of others. I mean, if Peter does it, it says in verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas... An influential man is influencing influencing other influential men. That's always a danger. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I mean, can you sense Paul's shock and disbelief here? Even Barnabas, even Barnabas, his close friend, who had in fact, it had been Barnabas who had introduced Paul to the church and defended him before the other apostles. Even Barnabas, who had helped Paul in his mission to the Gentiles, Paul could hardly believe it. What Paul had objected to was the hypocrisy of Peter. And not only of Peter now, but of Peter and Barnabas and the others. It wasn't Peter acted in a certain way that led others to begin to act in a certain way. And I'm assuming, I mean, we're, we're, you know, the text doesn't specifically tell us this, but we can surmise that time is passing, right? I mean, it's not like it was one meeting in which Paul decided, Peter decided, you know, I'm not going to eat with you guys. This is a behavior that started, and it became, started escalating to the point where others were now uh, emulating Uh, Peter and his hypocrisy. So what he objected was the hypocrisy of Peter and the others. Somebody once said that people follow your footsteps quicker than they follow your advice. Maybe this might be an example of, of that. That word hypocrite comes from the Greek theater where actors wore masks to play their parts, remember? Depending on the role that they played, they would Changed the mask they used for that particular role, for that particular part. Paul saw that Peter, he saw that Barnabas, and he saw that the others were putting on a charade. We're not arguing, and please don't misunderstand, we're not arguing that Peter or Barnabas or the others who were involved in this hypocritical behavior, we're not saying that they really believed that Gentiles were second-class Christians. But they were certainly acting as if they did. Their actions were not consistent with their theology. And the real effect of this hypocrisy was to deny the gospel. Listen to what one commentator says. He explains this well. He says, he, meaning Peter, knew perfectly well that faith in Jesus was the only condition on which God will have fellowship with sinners. But he added circumcision as an extra condition on which he was prepared to have fellowship with them, thus contradicting the gospel. That's the issue. It was almost as if Peter and the others had gone back to the, to, to, uh, on the agreement that they had reached in that Jerusalem visit that we talked about last week in verses 1 through 10. It's almost as if everything that had been decided upon during that visit, they had just gone back on all of a sudden the things that they said were not necessary apparently by their behavior are necessary. That was the issue for Paul. They were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. They were talking the talk, as we would say today, but they were not walking the walk. Their lifestyle was no longer in line with the gospel. I think this is another warning for the contemporary church. As you know, Doug mentioned, him and I discussed, things really don't change that much over time. Only the date differs oftentimes. But the issues are very much the same. Our behavior in the, con- in, 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 in the, in the church today in postmodern times, our behavior can undermine our belief it is possible for Christians to believe the gospel in their hearts and even confess that gospel with their mouths, yet deny it with their lives. Peter, Barnabas, and the others were there. question, what do our actions claim as we go out wherever God placed you on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? What did your actions, not words, Your actions say about the gospel, about the Christ of the gospel, about the God of the Bible, about the Bible, about church, about fellowship, Christians. Do our friendships, do our dinner invitations, do our ministry partnerships demonstrate our commitment to the unity and community we have in Christ? That's the question for the twenty-first century church, or are our actions are they out of step with the gospel? So when Peter confronted, uh, when Paul confronted Peter in Antioch, he was dealing with much more than just a social problem. Paul understood that his skirmish with Peter was nothing less than for the gospel of free grace. He says that that what Peter and Barnabas and the others were doing, were not in line with the gospel. On the surface, and that's why we, when, when, we, when we spend time reading the scriptures, we ought to study the words of the verses as we move slowly, verse by verse, in order to capture not just what may be said seemingly on the top, but what the deeper meaning of the text is. Because when you look at this, on the surface the issue was unity between Jews and Gentiles at the table. That's what it would appear to be just in a glance reading of the text. But beneath that surface which is what Paul had an issue with, beneath that surface lurked the deeper issue of what God requires for salvation. And that's a major issue. Listen, today we don't have fellowship, or at least in the sense that we understand fellowship or use the term fellowship, or we don't even have ministry partnership with certain groups because of their position what is required for a man to be saved. That's that central of an issue for us, for conservative evangelicals. And again, it's unfortunate that even today, you know, there was a time, I remember when I became a Christian, all you had to say was Christian or born again. Everybody understood what that meant. All the implications that make. Today we have, we have to use those two terms plus 10 or 15 other terms beyond that to define ourselves. Because every, what, 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 what something meant yesterday, it no longer means today. I mean, we, we don't even use the term evangelical to define orthodoxy anymore. And that was the definitive term that separated the orthodox and the liberal. Not anymore. There are so many variations of evangelicalism. Now we have to add additional things about who we are within the evangelical camp, unfortunately. Paul understood the issue here. The gospel proclaims that through the death of Christ and his resurrection from the grave, Jesus has done everything God requires for our salvation. There is nothing else we need to do to gain forgiveness for sins, enjoy fellowship with God, or have hope of eternal life, except, and he used the word ten times, trust in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of free grace, and anyone who believes it is a Christian. After the gospel, tells us what God has done to make us right with him, through the cross and the empty tomb. Listen, and here's, this is the issue we're now addressing. It proceeds to tell us how to live with one another, which was the issue that, that he's addressing now here in this passage. You recall that the Lord said that if a man has lustful thoughts of a woman in his mind, it is as good as if he had known that woman. Here's a, here's a proposition I want to make. I'm not saying it might be true of all of us, but it may be true of some of us. We don't always live out in public what we do entertain in our minds. Is that not a sin, though, yet? It's here. And so, so that, that to say, because, I mean, listen to the issue that Paul is addressing here. You know, the, the Jewish Christians are taking objection with the way Peter is behaving among Gentile Christians. To the extent that Peter is essentially breaking, in a sense, fellowship with those Gentile believers. He acted out what crossed his mind and heart. We don't always do that, but are we not yet as guilty, even though it was just here and here? And here's the issue. We must have fellowship with anyone and everyone who is in fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we all say amen, but we all entertain some thoughts about others who are not like us, have we not? By definition, if nothing else in our hearts and minds become as guilty as Peter did for acting out what he entertained in his mind or he allowed these people to influence him to do. Absolutely. If we refuse to have fellowship with them, then our actions deny the gospel just as it did with Peter. We are making a distinction. Listen, when we behave that way, we are making a distinction that God himself does not make. So the problem with this James gang, these folks that came from from Jerusalem, as they were, and they're recovering. We, we all agree that they were probably recovering Pharisees. They were concerned about outward appearances. They kept a list of things that people had to do to be good Christians. Now, these are not the Judaizers who said you have to be circumcised to be a Christian. These were Christians, but you know, th- these are recovering Pharisees who who have a list of things that you needed to do in order to be a good Christian. In a sense, there were legalists, though believers. When Gentile converts didn't do those things on that list, they were treated as second-class Christians. We, we talk of the Pharisees as if the nature of the Pharisees is not found deep in us. Yes. Pharisaism runs deep in human nature. We may not be by name Pharisees, but we are sometimes by theology or behavior or 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 thought, Pharisees. We're guilty of very m- much the same things. People always want to add something they do to what God has done. They always want to look down on people who haven't done it. Whatever it is. So it was not like like a gentile was standing up for the Gentiles or a Gentile was objecting to the Jewish Christians. It was a recovering Pharisee of Pharisees who was having a conversation with another devoted Jew who had walked with the Lord Jesus. Both had come out of that religion. Both had been freed from the bondage that came with that. So first he appealed to what they had shared in common. Look at verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. And not Gentile sinners. Peter and Paul had the same birthright. They were natural born Jews rather than pagans. And that's important in this argument. Because of who they're arguing against. Or at least Paul is arguing against. They had always been on the inside with God's people. Not on the outside with the world. And then Paul appealed to the gospel that they had both discovered to be true. And this point is worth emphasizing. The apostles had come to complete agreement about the good news of Jesus Christ. No question about that. The only difference of opinion was over what that good news meant for table fellowship. That was the issue here. The battle for the gospel then was not a contest between two different gospels. The gospel was not a dispute between Paul and Peter, Paul was fighting to make sure that the church would continue to live by the gospel it ha- that had always been preached. That's the issue. So the gospel they both preached was the gracious gospel of faith, not works. Look at verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And that coming from the mouth of the Lord himself, as he pointed out uh, in the gospel. And he says, so we have... So we also, meaning, you know, you, Peter, me, Paul, also have believed in, G- in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Listen, this is the famous doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Justification, as you all know, is a legal term. And it means to be proclaimed innocent or to be acquitted, to be cleared of all charges, to think that in Christ I have been justified by God. In its biblical sense, to be justified means to be declared righteous before the bar of God's justice. I am no longer guilty. I am no longer to pay for my sin because of what Christ has done in my place on the cross. And by virtue of me placing my trust in Christ, God has declared me righteous. And when I come before the Lord... What allows me entrance into heaven is not my works or my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ in me. Justification must be an important doctrine, because Paul mentions it three times in, this, uh, in three different ways in this single verse alone in verse uh, 16. First, he states the doctrine in general terms. If you look at the first part of verse 16, he says, a person is not justified. Just, and I mean by general terms, it means that he's not specifically referring to any one group, but he's saying a person, generally speaking, is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So this explains God's general method of salvation. How does a person get right with God? Not by keeping the law, but by trusting Jesus Christ. And when we talk about the law, is he and I'm not going to spend too much time here, but just to make a distinction, because there are those who have a different opinion on how this ought to be. What he means by the works of the law is he referring specifically to circumcision, or something else, or or circumcision and something else, or is he referring, generally speaking, to 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 the law in general? Personally, I believe that the correct interpretation is he's bringing into. The keeping of the law—all those things that make up the law—he's not making reference to a single aspect or a single uh, thing within the law, but the law in general. He's very clear. He said Paul makes an absolute distinction between salvation by works of the law and salvation by faith in Christ, and he m- makes a very important statement. If we paraphrase what he says, law keeping—do it all you want. Law-keeping cannot justify you. If you seek to live by the law so as to be made right with God, that approach, not that it will not, it cannot justify you. And why? Why is that true? We're not saying that there's anything wrong with the law itself, which comes from a righteous, the righteous character of God. Paul said in Romans 7, 7, 12, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What's the problem with the law? It's our lawlessness. The reason we cannot be justified by the law is that we can't keep it. There's nothing wrong with the law itself. It's just impossible to keep. And because it's impossible to keep, It's impossible to be justified by it. Even if we could keep God's commandments outwardly, we would break them inwardly. One individual stated it this way. No human deeds, however well motivated and sincerely performed, can ever achieve the kind of standing before God that results in the verdict of justification. You live well because you are in him. You live well as a result of having been justified, not to be justified. You'll never live up to that standard, ever. Happily, there is another way for us to be justified. Which way? By faith. Faith is a gift in and of itself. It is by the grace of God and by the working of the Holy Spirit in us that allows us to see clearly the truth of our sinfulness, of our enmity with Holy God, of our need for salvation, of our inability to save ourselves or to contribute to it, and of the Savior who came in order to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. I am not justified by what I did. I am justified by the one who did everything I could not do for myself. That's the issue. Which gospel are we preaching? Does it matter? I told you last week, you know, as important as it is for us to teach and preach the gospel, it's equally important for us to defend it. President Eisenhower once said that America, and I quote, is founded in a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is, close quote. Ike may not have cared but Paul certainly did. For Paul the important thing is what we believe in not merely the fact that we believe in it. We must believe in Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in verse 16 he actually says that three times three different ways. He says in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Christ we must believe. Faith is a total surrender to Jesus Christ, a complete acceptance of all that he is, of all that he has done for our salvation. The reason faith justifies is that it takes hold of Christ. Faith takes hold of Christ, and Christ is the one who makes us right with God. We are acceptable to God, not by keeping the law ourselves, but again by trusting in the one who did.